Matt Kibbe here, your host at Kibbe on Liberty. The building behind me is where the Mont Pelerin Society meeting is being held. This, of course, is a famous gathering of mostly Austrian economists founded by Frederick Hayek. It is also the place where in 1944, the so-called Bretton Woods Agreement was hatched up by the infamous John Maynard Keynes and a guy named Harry Dexter White, who was a treasury official under FDR, later discovered to be a Soviet spy. So you can imagine how this central plan to control our currency turned out in the long run. It was the death knell to the gold standard and, and it has created all sorts of chaos ever since. I'm gonna be talking to some of the brightest brains here not just about monetary policy, not just about the Bretton Woods Agreement, but where Liberty was then, where it is today, and how we move forward. Check it out. Judy, how's it going? <laughs> Everything's good. Thanks. How you doing, Matt? It's. Um, I was trying to do the math on the last time we collaborated, and it was quite a while ago. It was quite a while ago, but it's one of my uh, most treasured memories because Freedom Works, with you heading it, kindly published something like a hundred thousand copies of the Guide to Sound Money, and that was being put out by Atlas Network. Yeah. And uh, we had a big gathering in Washington, and that uh, really meant a lot to me. Jack Kemp's son was there, Jimmy. I remember that. And tragically, the Guide to Sound Money was not taken seriously by policymakers or our monetary overlords. And we're here at the Mont Pelerin Society meeting, and, and I'm doing a, a, a cool series of conversations with the, the biggest, most beautiful brains in the room. And it's kind of hard to choose because there's a lot of smart people there's here. There's a lot of smart people there. But we've been talking about uh, about money. And, and of course, Mont Pelerin was, was founded by Frederick Hayek when they felt the need to retreat to a mountaintop in Switzerland because <laughs> there were so few classical liberals literally surrounded on all sides by various deadly isms, you know, you had communism right. and Marxism and socialism and all that. And they, they couldn't have felt more um, desperate at, at, to their situation. So in some ways, things are better because there's a lot more of us fighting for these good ideas. But in, in other ways, um, the cause of sound money has just gotten worse over time. Well, I think that's true. And, and I think the negative aspects are accelerating and people are becoming more aware of it. I agree with you, I, I, being in an isolated setting like this, an exquisitely private setting, even though um, there are a lot of us running around at this grand old hotel, it's, it's nevertheless conducive to, to being able, in relative intellectual security, that is, there's plenty of disagreement among all these smart people, but they feel safe yeah. because uh, they know that the, they have the same shared principles and values. And so that's sort of the, the goal of civilized discourse. So I, I, this is my first time coming to a Mount Pelerin event. I've loved every minute. Yeah. I have been to Bretton Woods before for prior conferences. I'm fascinated by Bretton Woods, but um, I'm especially pleased and feel 
grateful to have been invited to participate at, at this meeting. You know, I hadn't really thought of it that way because um, it would have been normal, even just a couple years ago, to have honest, heated debates about subjects that really matter. But that's really unique now, and I, I realize this, and there's, there's all sorts of uh, uh, fights between friends and scholars, and, and almost every panel is sort of designed that way so that there's, there's a clash of, of ideas. And you're right, it's, it's, it's unique. It's, like, it's almost like our little safe space where we're allowed to have, <laughs> we're allowed to have a real argument, a constructive argument. Which, which is nice. None of us are snowflakes out here. Yeah. But um, I do enjoy that. And, and as you say, that makes sense to me now. The panels maybe are set up that way. Yeah. To have differences of opinion, but talking about the same objectives within this shared set of values and principles. So I think that's very useful. Um, I, I, it opens up your mind to considering different approaches yeah. to, to solving what you might consider a problem. Yeah, and, and you asked me before we started, um, are, are we allowed to talk about the Mont Pelerin Society? And one of the, and I, I've been a member for maybe 15 years now, and it used to be a secret society. They didn't want anybody talking about what happened behind these closed doors. And I believe the keynote speeches are now being live streamed. Well, I know they are. Oh, so that's good. a that's a radical change. It but, is. But the reason that I've been coming here um, and doing this part is that I, I have this this passionate belief that substantial ideas can find a much broader audience than 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 it would if if it's just academics talking to academics. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I think you. For me, I, I love what think tanks do because they're kind of at the nexus of intellectual inquiry and moving forward with, with policy. And that's, it's not just a matter of getting consensus on, on shared ideas. It's now what do we do and how do we forge ahead. So we were just now saying this sense of being able to have different approaches to solving some of the issues that we all find uh, compelling, um, that I don't mind. What, what I find is, is when you encounter people who, um, who say sound money or dependable dollar are code words for the, the crank right-wing fringe. Right. I mean, that you're, you're already starting in the hole yeah. because they have some surprisingly stereotyped vision of, of you instead of stopping to look at liberal in the classical sense, how, how empowering to the individual it is, how, how, what it means to have a unit of account that is meaningful across borders, that serves as a store of value. I mean, these are basic private property rights. I find it unbelievable, really, right. that our Federal Reserve can kind of hold itself up as an example of monetary rectitude. We are going to get back to 2% inflation a year. Right. Well, that, that's, that's, that is deliberate debasement of the nation's unit of account. And to me, it, let's say you, you earned your salary, you want to keep it in dollars, you, you put it under your mattress. Maybe you don't want to put it at risk and, and invest it or, or give it to a bank. Um, 
let's say you use it 20 years later and and it's it's 40% less valuable this is a silent expropriation of private property you earned that purchasing power and now now it's been skimmed yeah uh, year after year which adds up to a significant amount so um, I'm amazed when people, their first attitude is, oh, oh, be more sophisticated and understand monetary policy. I do understand monetary policy. And I see the pursuit of, of stable prices, part of the mandate, as an oxymoron. Or uh, because, no, they say stable inflation now mm -hmm. instead of stable prices. Right. Stable inflation. And that's the conflict right there. Well, I think, I think these two things are related. The demonization is an obvious strategy to distract from the fact that you're you're basically describing a reverse Robin Hood scheme where the connected, the insiders, the haves are getting money by debasing the currency from the have-nots. So like if you if you are carrying your monthly income in dollars in your wallet, particularly over the last three or four years, you've lost so much of your wealth and and that that's being that's going somewhere it's not disappearing it's transferring to the insiders who are playing this game and I'm, I've sort of realized that that a lot of this name calling the demonization the cranks um, you know conspiracy theory is a great one where you, no you're not describing a conspiracy theory you're describing the actual process of, of who wins and who loses when they do this sort of central planning with our money. I, I agree with you completely. Uh, through discretionary monetary policy, the Federal Reserve can absolutely channel financial benefits to one segment of society at the expense of others. And if you look at zero interest rates, which we had from uh, October 2008 to December 2015, who did that benefit? It was it was great if you were big government, big business, or an already wealthy big investor. If you were if you were sufficiently uh, wealthy to own financial assets, then you could at scarcely more than zero percent borrow money to increase your portfolio on margin at a time when that was blowing up like a bubble. And, and those benefits would accrue to you. If you were someone who maybe in the future you might be lucky enough to have financial assets, but meantime you were trying to be responsible, and maybe you put weekly savings from your salary into a savings bank, you were getting zilch. I've long thought that that kind of monetary policy meant to stimulate, it really just made suckers out of savers. At Kibbe on Liberty, freedom is a lifestyle 24-7, something you live and breathe and wear every day. If that describes you, you need the very best Liberty swag in the market today, just like this shirt I happen to be wearing. Go to freethepeople.org slash KOL and check out our exciting merch. You too can love Liberty and look cool. Yeah, yeah, and, and it, it undermines trust, I think, in, in all institutions. And I'm I'm quite sympathetic to people that have just had it, and 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 we have to do something about that. 
which is perhaps a nice segue to your new project, your forthcoming book. Um, and I, I want to ask you about the title itself, Good as Gold. There's a history to that phrase. Yes, um, there was an article by Milton Friedman called As Good as Gold, an interesting one. I think Art Laffer has has written an article, again, going back, I'm talking decades. Yeah, yeah. Uh, good as Gold. But the historical reference, I think, talks about the gold standard. I mean, what does it mean to have money as good as gold is to say that um, the money is gold. It's, it's sound money. It makes a sound when you drop it on a table. It's funny, my earlier book on, on the international monetary system, uh, that was called Money Meltdown. And I would meet regularly um, with Robert Mundell, who won his his Nobel in 1999, and it was largely based on his his analysis of prior international monetary systems. He is the father of the optimal currency area approach, and um, and he even is attributed as being the um, behind the supply side program that Ronald Reagan used so so effectively. And he told me on the title of of that book. He said it shouldn't be uh, money meltdown. He, he said it should be uh, money conflagration. And I thought, well, that doesn't go trippingly off yeah, the that... tongue. But he explained, he said, because um, metallic money, um, it's, it, that's not the problem of it melting. It's the paper money that burns. Yeah. <laughs> so um, he was always a, a great intellectual mentor for me and he always thought that gold could play an important role in an international monetary system so i've always come uh, at it from from an austrian perspective and i suspect you have um, complementary but different influences that drive you but um, to me gold and, and i think about carl menger's understanding of the evolution of money that sort of spontaneously emerged when people decided that they could trust certain things to hold their value. And that's, that's where the use of, of gold in particular came from. And to me, um, when, when you say gold or the gold standard or a dollar that is explicitly linked to gold, you're basically saying you can trust this because people cannot manipulate the value of it. So as a means of exchange, it, it's serving the purpose that we want money to serve. Yes, it has intrinsic value. Yeah, as opposed to to fiat money. Greenspan always said fiat. I looked it up; they're both proper pronunciation, but it just means that the government says this is worth what I say it's worth yeah. because I'm the government. Yeah, and um, that which, by the way, <laughs> is a lie. <laughs> is, is I guess at any moment you could say this is now worth forty percent less than it was before, and. That's honest, but that's not how they But this about is it. what you get. Yeah. There was a great exchange, you just reminded me of, um, between Ron Paul and Ben Bernanke. And Ron Paul headed up a, a subcommittee, I think under House Financial Services, on monetary policy. So he had his, his chance twice yearly to grill the chair of the Federal Reserve. So he, he asked Bernanke, how do, you, how do you define a dollar? What is, what is a dollar? And Bernanke said, well, a dollar is, is what it will buy. 
And he wasn't, he wasn't going to go along with that. <laughs> and so um, Ron Paul said, well, that, that doesn't make sense because that changes all the time. Is this meant to be a monetary standard, a standard of value? Why, why would you say it's just what it will buy? And Bernanke said, well, people don't care about owning a dollar because, because of gold, for example. They buy lots of things, groceries, and so they just want to have a dollar that, that um, gives them reasonable purchasing power over a vast array of consumer goods. So Ron Paul said, why do you have gold then? Why, why does our government hold, hold gold? And Bernanke said, no reason. No reason, he said, it's just an asset. And I was watching and Ron Paul says, well, why don't they hold diamonds? And I thought it was so good. I, I, I like that, remembering that, because at the time when, when I was a nominee uh, for the Federal Reserve under the Trump administration, so this would have been in um, 2020, um, the vote wasn't until November. So in those months leading up to that, there were some pretty harsh um, editorials and opinion pieces, and and one of them referred to me as um, this gold bug, and I think the headline in the Washington Post was uh, Judy Shelton would be a dangerous pick for the Federal Reserve, and it went through my my history of believing that that gold could play a role in in bringing us toward um, a recognition of the importance of monetary integrity. It could be a benchmark yeah. to see if governments really perform if they say, even if they say we're gonna keep it at 2%, let's just see if they could even do that. Yeah. I don't think so. But under that, um, the criticism of that article, I sent off a quick email to Alan Greenspan, who's, who's been a pal for decades. And I started it off saying, Dear Alan, um, do you denote a certain hysterical level of antagonism toward those who support the gold standard, because that was the first line in his very famous paper, Gold and Economic Freedom, that he wrote in the 1960s that is contained in the compendium uh, by Ayn Rand uh, called- Ca Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal. Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal. I should know, you would know that, of course. I could tell you the page number for Greenspan's, but that's how he opened his. There's a hysteric level of hysterical antagonism, but he goes on to say that gold is the only thing between you and, and robbery by, by your government, and it's your only defense against a welfare state. Well, um, he wrote back very quickly, an email back, and he said, uh, interesting times. And he said, if, if gold is such a worthless metal, why does the United States government and every other major government keep so much of it in storage? <laughs> I thought, from a guy who was the head of the world's most powerful central bank for 18 years, it seems to me that his question is worth pondering. Yeah. And... And of course, and and let, let's let's talk about this a little bit because your nomination to to sit on the board of the Federal Reserve stalled, not because the Democrats didn't support you. You could imagine a partisan divide, but um, Republicans, a handful, and maybe it was this bizarre. I, all I know is what I read on Wikipedia, which may or may not even be remotely true. <laughs> But, but you ultimately lost a couple of Republicans who wanted that power to centrally plan and manipulate 
um, people and money um, to their advantage, I would argue, over the, the trust of the American people. It was actually a lot closer than I think people are aware. You're right, all the Democrats went against me, including two Democrat senators who three days before said they had come in contact with COVID, that was everyone's big worry at the time, and therefore would be self-isolating. Well, suddenly when my, my hearing was scheduled, they scooted back to Washington and they were there. Huh. Um, but for me, what was interesting and remains distressing is the main Republican who went against me was Mitt Romney. I thought maybe this is because I was nominated by President Trump. Otherwise, I couldn't understand why he would. For one thing, I got my PhD at the University of Utah. It won an award for best doctoral student paper. It brought a little bit of honor to the University of Utah, his home state. And, and then, I'm sure it was a factor, and I, I got a postdoctoral fellowship at Stanford at the Hoover Institution. So I never understood why Mitt Romney, a, as a Republican, would go against my ideas, certainly. And Susan Collins, I'm not sure why, but I, I think because I'd written that the Humphrey Hawkins Act does not explicitly have the word the Fed is independent. Instead, it says there should be cooperation between the Board of Governors of the Fed, um, the Council of Economic Advisors, uh, the administration, they should all work together to achieve certain U.S. objectives, in, in, including stable money. But I just pointed out that, yes, we understand that independence of the Fed is now something to insulate them from political influence, but it's not explicitly written anywhere. So that's why we should be careful in how we define it. Um, but the, so there were two Republicans against me. That would have made it very close. And then one who very strongly supported me, Rick Scott from Florida, did get COVID, honored his agreement to isolate. And then the night before the vote, I still had it, uh, Grassley, the night before, apparently thought he'd just now been exposed. And so it was questionable that he would make the vote tomorrow. He would miss a floor vote first time in 5,000 floor yeah. votes, longest serving member. He wasn't able to make it because he said, I think I've been exposed. And I guess I was getting calls during the day <laughs> because it was neck and neck that don't worry, um, the next thing would be Romney would pair with him out of courtesy, that if he couldn't make it, Romney was against, he was for, they would neutralize. I guess at some level of politesse mm -hmm. practiced in Congress, Romney wouldn't pair with him. Apparently, Mike Pence was ready to suit up and break the tie. He called me later after the vote, which I greatly appreciated. Mike Pence called me up personally at home. I was out feeding our animals. <laughs> and said, I just want you to know that we really wanted you and I was ready to break the tie and eager. What I learned later, months later, I, I received a call from someone I trust and who definitely knew, I mean, this was correct, who told me that, that on the eve of that vote that Chair Powell had asked, 
for the personal cell phone of Mitt Romney. Hmm. I'm, he, he's, I said, I, I didn't know that. I later went back and checked the record on the Fed website. The FOIA requires the chairman's calls and meetings to be recorded. Yes, he did. He made a call to Mitt Romney about 6.15. I never saw another call that late at night. And I thought, I just, I wonder, was I mentioned? And I don't know, I mean, maybe that's delusions of grandeur. Would the, would the chair have gone to the effort to say to Romney, stay strong? Maybe I wasn't measure, mentioned, maybe it had nothing to do with it, but it was bothersome, it was bothersome to me because it would be inappropriate for a chair to get involved in deciding who the next nominee is. I hope I'm wrong, but um, the timing of that and subsequent things I heard, it, it, it's possible there was chatter, oh, oh, it's all part of a grand strategy to make her chair of the Fed. I guarantee um, uh, President Trump never mentioned that <laughs> to me, so I certainly don't think it was part of any grand strategy. That would have been a separate, a separate vote and a separate committee hearing. But that rumor was then played up, I suppose, to make, to make me seem like an even greater danger with this radical view that money should actually um, be trustworthy. Thank you for joining me today on Kibbe on Liberty and for being part of our fiercely independent audience. Every week, my organization, Free the People, partners with Blaze TV to bring you this show. My guests bring smart perspectives on everything from current events to timeless philosophical debates. If you like what you hear, go to freethepeople.org KOL and support Kibbe on Liberty so we can continue to produce these honest conversations with interesting people. Now, let's get back to it. Yeah. Well, I, um, I'll be less politic than you are. It, it, it looks like a, a bit of a smoking gun to me, and it doesn't surprise me. Um, and, and I'll also be tougher on Mitt Romney than perhaps you'll be because I'm old enough to remember many versions of Mitt Romney. <laughs> I sat through a Club for Growth talk that he gave the first time he ran for president. And I'm going to screw up the dates because it was, it was not the time he became the nominee, I don't think. Mm -hmm. And at the, that version of Mitt Romney was very much a supply-sider that, that wanted to um, do smart tax reform and wanted to, to rein in regulation. And I'm sure he talked about sound money because that would have been part of that right. portfolio. And, and he has become, as a senator, um, and, and, and we, we did not support him for Senate, um, he's become one of these technocratic... Um, debt financing, we don't really need to focus on that stuff. And, and this is the, in my mind, as a libertarian, this is the unholy collusion between the people that want endless wars mm. and the people that want endless spending on domestic programs. They used to trade, right? right. We'll, we'll cut a little bit of this and a little bit of that because we've got to balance the budget. And, um, but if you actually had sound money, you couldn't monetize all this debt. They would actually have to get back to doing the responsible thing in terms of, of reigning and spending. So um, I'm not surprised that Mitt Romney was 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 the enemy in this story, but uh, you don't have to comment on that. All right. <laughs> but um, but I, you're, the way you laid that out, I, I agree with that paradigm, that those hard choices 
of uh, the fiscal considerations and having a balanced budget and choosing your priorities yeah. and being good stewards of the revenues received from citizens. I think that needs to be more prominent in, in our thinking. So um, we've, we've cited one of my favorite economists, Carl Menger. We've cited Hayek, um, and um, we've also um, uh, hat-tipped Ayn Rand, which is fabulous. And Mundell. And, and Mundell. A lot of smart, cool people. My, my wife, Terry, yells at me because I'm constantly quoting dead economists. And she's like, you know, normal people don't care about that stuff, right? Well, we're two of a kind. Yes. I do care about it. So I like when you do that. It's, it's a joke because um, our, our job at Free the People is to translate into something that, that, that folks do care about. Right. I mean, obviously, this stuff is, is essentially life and death to, to, to average Americans. But I want to I go back to your book, um, which I'll admit that I haven't read yet, um, but I've, I've read your other books, and I have, I have some sense for where you're coming from. But I'm thinking about this, this, this famous uh, interview that, that Frederick Hayek did after he released The Denationalization of Money, yeah. where he's, and a lot of uh, crypto types are saying he was anticipating uh, uh, cryptocurrency because and, and this this is this is very much you have you have reforms that could get us back to sound money but it's kind of a strategic question and, and he's his 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 entire I'll, I'll bastardize his statement but he's like uh, everything that's wrong in the world is because of the nationalization of money they've screwed up everything they've screwed up economic um, coordination and they've created all of these problems if I could I would just get rid of all that and get, get government out of money completely. But I don't think I can. So we have to come up with some sort of workaround, some sort of sly, sneaky way of, of freeing money from government planners. And that's, that's the essence of what your book is about, I believe. Well, the Hayekian approach of private competing currencies is the most appealing to me. And I'm going back to 1994 and that earlier book, Money Meltdown. Um, I laid out four potential ways you, you try to pursue sound money. And one is, is with a fixed exchange rates, a gold standard type approach, a classical international gold standard. The other is a pegged rate system. That was Bretton Woods. The big problem with that, the reason Milton Friedman who was also a colleague at, at Hoover, um, doesn't like that, is he says, you just can't trust governments to honor it. And I think he was quite right about that, as we saw, certainly, as they all saw in 71, unfortunately. But I think it, it made sense at the time to try to get back to something that could bring us toward a more level monetary playing field. It was anchored by gold, but it was too reliant on one country and it gave the gold convertibility privilege only to foreign central banks instead of individuals. So in those two senses, it was not as good as the prior classical gold standard. Um, the third way was pure floating rates, with which Milton, of course, um, promoted. But the problem I always thought was, you're, at best, you're talking about a cartel because you're saying the only ones who can issue these these currencies are governments. So you have, you've already blocked freedom of entry into the market. Only governments can issue these currencies and then they presumably would float in value against each other. 
But that was compromised almost from the beginning. It was a dirty float from the get-go because governments then said, well, we don't, we don't want to have problems, so let's start stockpiling other currencies. And then if ours starts to get out of whack, we'll just start buying and selling accordingly to, to artificially set the rate. So, so that was not what I would call a market solution. But those are the kind of things you can discuss with a fellow conservative, one would think. For me, the most appealing, as I just said, was the, the Hayek approach, the denationalization of money, because if you believe in competition as the best way to achieve the best product, and for me, the way you define the, the best qualities of money would be that it, that it provide a, a reliable store value, a meaningful unit of account, and uh, a, a widely usable medium of exchange. And I liked the idea at the time of that paper, which came out in, in 76 before it became a book. Um, what, I, what I liked was just the vision of someone standing at the checkout stand and doing a quick check if they could. At that point, we didn't have the technology. So I envisioned somehow the cash register would be like a, like a, a Bloomberg terminal of exchange rates. And that a person could say, um, I choose to use this currency. And these didn't need to be sovereign currencies, but they could. These could be private competitive currencies issued by, by uh, what we would now think of as MasterCard or Visa or some big provider. Um, but let's say they were the logical ones to put out private currencies that could be used for, for purchases and, and decide at any given moment what one I want to use to carry out this consumer purchase today. And that would keep them all competing to provide the best unit. Well, now it seems to me we're kind of getting close to that. I remember doing a Cato conference where I said, why doesn't some bright person invent a form of, of money that's made up of a basket of currencies and keep adjusting the, the relative amounts if you need, but whatever it takes to keep that stable and appealing that people seem to want to use. And I said, let's call it har money <laughs> because I thought it'll bring into harmony the best monies out there but not be dependent if one goes bust. Um, and, and now I, I think something like that could be good. The problem is cryptocurrencies do, cannot compete against legal tender tax-wise. Think of that. You, you can have money that you got 20 years ago and it was worth, we know, decidedly less, but now you're going to use that money to buy something today, U.S legal tender dollars, you don't pay capital gains uh, taxes on, on the value of it. You just carry out the transaction. But if you have um, Bitcoin, my understanding, and, and I think Congress learned when the fury of the Bitcoin community came down on them, and Cynthia Loomis of Wyoming was the only one, yeah. Senator Loomis, who understood this whole world. Um, that they were wanted to tax the the cryptocurrencies, but uh, they still have tremendous ability to differentiate and I think cause a penalty um, against these potential competitors to the dollar or any sovereign currency. Also, I think the cryptocurrencies are now 
being uh, stigmatized. Oh, they they just were being used to channel funds to unsavory groups. I I don't doubt it. I'm I'm sure Treasury is following all that, but um, that is also convenient to discourage. Again, the demonization demonization tells me that they view it as a substantial threat, threat to their monopoly. Um, I think we're, it's reasonable to want to investigate further or yeah. at least give some numbers because um, don't tell me the dollars, that 70% of the $2 trillion in actual paper dollars that have been printed um, float outside the United States. Yeah. And I have seen wads of $100 bills in the pockets of billionaires in Russia and Mexico and other places. So, yeah. so some of that is maybe not too... Um, the most lofty purpose. I don't know, but I think you could link the dollar to to scandalous use as well. The, um, I'm thinking of the irony of uh, if if you held your wealth in dollars in in a safe, um, it's very much guaranteed to be a depreciating asset, <laughs> um, and yet they demonize cryptocurrency. And if you if you held Bitcoin Bitcoin three, four, five, six, ten years ago, it's worth a whole lot more than it used to be. And, and for some reason, that's, that's a bad thing. Well, now if you use it, you'll pay capital gains. Right. Now, in a, way, in a way, the fact that the, the value changes can be seen as a disadvantage in that I think some people do hold Bitcoin as an investment. Yeah. They use dollars for their, their, their daily purchases. On the other hand, when you value anything, gold, Bitcoin, Dogecoin, any kind of uh, popular... Um, alternative asset, it, it, it seems to me that um, you're measuring the value of that asset in terms of the dollar. I hear people say, well, gold is so unstable because look, the price goes up and down. And I'm like, well, in terms of dollars. So maybe it's the dollar that's dictating the, um, the volatility. Yeah. And so, so if people translate Bitcoin into local currency, then then it's now you're measuring um, that currency against the the alternative currency instead of vice versa. If you made it this far into the show, it means I must be doing something right. Kibbe on Liberty is just one of the amazing products we created for the people. We tell emotionally compelling stories and produce educational videos for the Liberty curious. Our award-winning documentaries personalize all things liberty, independence, creativity, hard work, integrity, and perseverance. After the show, check out our work at freethepeople.org. And if you like what you see, donate to support what we do. That's freethepeople.org. Now back to the show. I also think, you know, going back to the the Carl Menger um, story about, about the spontaneous evolution of of things we value as as a, as a means of exchange, we're we're just babies when it comes to cryptocurrency. I think I think we're probably figuring out what this is. And when I say we, I'm talking about everybody, not mm-hmm. not just the smart people that think they can figure it out for us. Um, and and I did read uh, what I think was the first chapter in the new book, and somewhere or somewhere in this book. You cite your friend and and otherwise insanely smart guy George Gilder about yeah. 
about like he has some vision where crypto and gold can be this thing that that Hayek is imagining when we when we think of a workaround for for corrupt fiat currency. I have a lot of respect for George Gilder, so that made my day. <laughs> Made my millennium <laughs> when he um, checked that box. <laughs> yeah, that that was that was nice because he is a is a, a, a future thinker. He really um, was valued by Jack Kemp, who who's someone I also consider a, a mentor and and a champion of freedom in this area of sound money. Um, but yes, my my proposal is to do something that can be thought of as trivial or radical. The U.S. owns 261 million ounces of gold. We carry them at a book value. Which they do just because there's no reason for holding that much gold. It's the legacy of the Bretton Woods international monetary system. Oh, which they do. (laughs) In keeping with Bernanke, by coincidence, they happen to have this I don't, I, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I think Greenspan actually used the word bulwark in, yeah. in his comment to me. And um, uh, I, the European Central Bank really also referred to their considerable gold holdings as a monetary bulwark. So somehow the central bankers respect it, and they've been buying a lot of it lately, yeah. which is interesting. But we carry it at $42.22 an ounce because at the ending of the Bretton Woods system in August 1971, it was clear the $35 per ounce of gold uh, approach, which had, had been um, the heart of the system since it was adopted in roughly 1946, wasn't holding. Under, under Nixon, we were in the guns and butter era inherited from Johnson. And uh, running budget deficits, that caused inflation, excess purchasing power. Some of that was getting exported overseas. And within their rights under the Bretton Woods system, these countries um, who were obliged to maintain fixed exchange rates with the dollars, their only redress was to say, but we can turn in those excess dollars for gold. Well, they started doing it increasingly. And it was on the eve of... a, a a known event that, I mean, our allies were France and Britain, but they were ready to trade in another big pile of dollars for the gold. And Volcker, who was the uh, Under Secretary for Monetary Affairs at Treasury, went to Camp David with President Nixon and advised him, we have to temporarily close the gold window, which is also the way Nixon portrayed it in his speech that day announcing it. Um, These things are always temporary. Temporarily, until we can get back to a new international monetary system after needed reforms, which Volcker later told me personally, said, I always thought we would get back. We would just set a new rate of convertibility. So they chased that for about a year and a half. And it was, went up to, how about $38? How about 40 And finally, by February of 1973, at something called the Smithsonian Agreement. They said, forget this, it's over. But at that point, they had put the official convertibility rate at $42.22 per ounce of gold. So since that time, for what, 50 years? Is, it, is that price holding? 
<laughs> well, because I'm buying. There's if some it is. windfall profits in there somewhere, and that's that's what I'm talking about. That money is doing nothing for 50 years. It's carried as a total those 261 million ounces of being worth 11 billion at $2,000 an ounce. It's closer to a half trillion. That's real money. My proposal is something concrete because I've just decided it's not enough to promote sound money and the Fed's too prominent, too powerful, too political. Let's try one piece of either legislation or even better. We get a treasury secretary under the right new presidential administration who like Robert Rubin says, we're always looking for new treasury offerings to give an array of choices to potential um, debt holders of the United States of Treasury issuances. Uh, In 1999, Rubin put up tips bonds, Treasury Inflation Protected Securities, because some people who said, I'm willing to invest in, in U.S. Treasury debt, but I don't want inflation to go up beyond what the interest rate is suggesting it would. I mean, we'd pay, they're paying a little bit of a premium for that. But I want to be compensated if it goes up more than we're expecting. So TIPS bonds retroactively pay you the cost of living adjustment so that your treasury bond doesn't rip you off because of unanticipated inflation. What I'm suggesting is that treasury issue a 50-year bond. This is something we looked at at treasury. I was on the transition team. Certainly 30-year bonds are out there. And 50 was considered. And so the reason I say 50 is, let's say this was issued in 2026. 50 years later, the date of maturity would just happen to coincide with the 300th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Now I'm hoping and presuming the United States will not only still be around then, but will be proud of that declaration. And we'll be, I'd like to see us reaffirm the principles and ideals encompassed in that document. So what this bond would do is it would say to a holder, I propose we call them treasury trust bonds, but I appreciate George Gilder suggested we call them Shelton bonds. <laughs> I'd be happy with that. But treasury trust T- bonds. Take it. <laughs> I'll take Go it. Go with it. Well, then you suffer or you or you are triumphant, but right. at least you're, you rise or fall based on your commitment to an idea. Yeah. I'm willing to do that. But the structure of the bond would be at maturity, you either get this face amount of dollars or at the option of the bondholder, an ounce of gold. So for example, gold at 2000 today in 50 years, if the Fed, and they can't do it alone, Treasury has to be in on this too, in terms of fiscal what's non-malfeasance, okay, fiscal responsibility. But let's say between fiscal and monetary policy, we actually do attain 2% inflation for those 50 years. I'd prefer it be zero, but look, they say they can do 2%. Well, let's say they're really committed to that and they achieve it. At maturity in 50 years, gold, if it increased at the same rate, which it has a historical habit of doing, would be worth 5,400 an ounce, which makes sense because it means the dollar lost more than half its value over that time. Nevertheless, 
On that day, would a bondholder then be indifferent between $5,400, easier to handle dollars, or an ounce of gold? Well, we'll see. But if it turns out that our, our government agencies, which the Fed is, did not perform as promised, and inflation went to three or five or every once in a while nine, as we saw, and in 50 years, uh, the price of gold, an ounce of gold, was much higher than that $5,400 on the face amount. Then they say, I'll take the gold. Yeah. I'll take the gold. The incentive effect should be if Treasury and the Fed do better than 2% inflation, 1% maybe, then everyone, and gold likewise increases at the same rate, in 50 years, people would say, I'd rather have, have the dollars. Good for them. Good for them. Meanwhile, though, like tips bond rates, depending what people would bid to buy that instrument will be a reflection of aggregate expectations of the purchasing power of the dollar, not in terms of CPI, which is what tips compensates you for, but in terms of people who say, I see gold as a surrogate for the real economy, for real goods. So I, I like that as an investment that works for me. And then, if you'll indulge me, Matt, you've been so kind to let me say my piece, but let's say if the U.S. issues this as a pilot program, but not inconsiderable, because now um, at that value, we're talking about bond issuance worth about a trillion and a half. That would put you right up, not quite as high as TIPS bonds now, which represent 8% of total Treasury offerings, but it would be between 6 and 7%. It would be more than the Treasury issues in floating rate notes. I mean, it's these are workable proposals as far as the way Treasury looks at how they, how they finance U.S. accumulated debt. But what I'm saying, if we did this, and people start paying attention to to what people how they value that Treasury security, what if the European Central Bank issued the same kind of instrument? and said, okay, well, we're also going to issue a Euro-denominated 50-year bond redeemable for an ounce of gold at the end. What if China did that? China's been collecting a lot of gold. What if China said, not to be outdone, we will also issue a sovereign bond that gives the bondholder the right to convert into an ounce of gold based on this amount of, of yuan, that will be our face amount. You are now setting up a future fixed exchange rate system based on the classical international gold standard because all three of those sovereign debt instruments are convertible into one ounce of gold. But now you let the market decide the relative value of the currency, the validity of the promise, whether they think the government will perform or not, and now let's see them try to outdo each other in terms of, of fiscal rectitude and monetary responsibility. That, I think, is a way of bringing us to a stable international monetary playing field. And that, I think, is the basis of free trade. And as much as some, some of my detractors said, oh, even Milton Friedman, her fellow conservative, criticized her for her praise of Bretton Woods. 
if they read the next sentence, he did. It, no surprise. He didn't like Bretton Woods, and I, I get it. I don't trust governments either, but that was the best we could do then, and at least it was anchored to gold. And it worked for 44, or no, for 25 years. The prior system worked for 44. But the very next sentence in something Milton Friedman wrote saying, saying, we don't want to go back to Bretton Woods, he said, a gold standard, a pure gold standard is consistent with free trade. That never seemed to get mentioned because the criticism of, of Bretton Woods, which I was then affiliated with because I said, well, a gold anchor system was not a bad thing, was used to badmouth even using the word gold in talking about monetary policy. And what has surprised me is how ignorant <laughs> columnists don't understand that Paul Volcker understood the power of gold and the need for a currency that would work around the world. Um, Alan Greenspan was famous for connecting gold and economic freedom. Uh, Milton Friedman said a gold standard is completely consistent with free trade. And he came in the end to say, I would rather have a gold standard than a dirty float. Yeah. So these giants and legendary central bankers and Nobel Prize winners are conversant in understanding stability and having an anchor. Look, it doesn't have to be gold, but I think why not gold? They already, all the central banks around the world have it in their reserves. So if someone can come up with something better, at this conference, Bretton Woods in 1944, the Cubans wanted it to be sugar. <laughs> and a lot of countries wanted it to be silver, like Mexico and China. But they decided to go with gold. So, um, by the way, I do not think that this is John Maynard Kane's room um, uh, at Bretton Woods. I was, I was in it last night. Uh, uh, we put poor Ben Powell in that room, and so he has to contend with the ghost of, of Keynes. So this this proposal is laid out in your new book, I presume? Yes, in detail. Yes. Um, the new book, Good as Gold, How to Unleash the Power of Sound Money, is uh, being released by the Independent Institute soon. When does it come out? Not till next year. And boy, am I grateful for the Independent Institute. I became a senior fellow with the Independent Institute, I, I embrace their mindset and everything they stand for, and they have really kept the faith with me. And I'm, I'm just so pleased and, and appreciate deeply being affiliated with that great institute. I think they're a true think tank. Yeah, I've, I've used their work for forever, basically. Oh, I, how nice. I, I wonder, I, I'm trying to remember when they were founded, but they were basically there even when I was a, a very young economist. And I've had a number of uh, independent institute scholars on the show. Um, other stuff that you're working on that you want to tell people about, this is your moment to shamelessly flack the work <laughs> of Judy Sheldon. <laughs> that's, that's very kind. Um, I, I, no, I would, I would say my, my chief focus is not just, I want the book out there to hopefully generate interest. Um, I mean, all authors, I guess, promote their books. I, I, I'm, I haven't said this, but my intention is to just give the copyright to the Independent Institute. So I'm, it's not for personal gain. I'm yeah. fine on that. But it would be much more gratifying, to, and I will let Mary Thoreau know, because I adore 
the leader of the Independent Institute. Her husband, David Thoreau, was the founder, but she was right there alongside him. And she's very boldly and bravely carrying it on. And I have enormous respect for her and uh, Graham Walker, who's the president. So I want the book to be a success. Um, if, it, if there's, you know, in, in the one sense, if it helps the Independent Institute and the good work they're doing. But I think, I hope it becomes something that people say, well, why couldn't we do this, this idea? And then I want to take on people who say, that's dumb, we don't want to do it. And then I want to say, now why? First off, you're going to get a windfall gain from a budget point of view. The difference between $42 an ounce and $2,000 an ounce, we could take into the, the budget. So it's a cheap way for the government to finance debt, the best. And probably people would pay a premium for this. I mean, this could, it could be issued as a savings bond, maybe only for Americans. Maybe, maybe they buy it for their grandkids. Um, I, don't, I don't care. I mean, I mean, I care, but whatever works and would maximize um, the, the way it's received, I think would be, would be most be beneficial. But uh, if it starts making people say, yes, I, I do care about that. I like the idea. The, of, that I could choose whether I'd rather have the gold or the dollar. That's now a contractual thing. I don't have to trust what any monetary official or fiscal official says. I, that's a moral contract. The other thing is I don't want someone to get the bright idea where we need money for the next statism project. So, hey, let's sell that gold off. No. Let's lock that up for 50 years as collateral for this instrument. So there are multiple objectives. But I think the fact that the Fed today looks at TIPS bonds for information, at the very least, this becomes an information tool to say what are people's aggregate expectations about the future value of the dollar relative to some, some commodity measure which will let gold play that role. And then finally, the international aspects of this working toward a more stable exchange rate system that is not subject to one nation reneging. Every nation is competing to say ours is as good as we said when we made the deal that we, you would get an ounce of gold. And, and if people at the end say, I'm sorry I did that with China, <laughs> Uh, or I'm sorry I did it with the, the, the euro, I wish I'd bet on the dollar, but if the dollar isn't performing, well, that's the competition. The last part, and here's where I need the help of the crypto community. If there's interest in this offering, and it's still limited by just you know half trillion worth, and we only have those ounces, unless the US starts buying more, but what I would like to see is if there's, if there's consumer demand for this instrument, then let private firms pair traditional treasury securities with gold futures contracts. And if people like having instruments that give you a, a, a degree of, of um, optionality at the end where you could choose how you want to get paid, your, your maturity, the face value at maturity, uh, that's great. That will expand the impact of this exercise. But I even can imagine, and this is where the people who understand stable coins could help a lot if they like the basic idea. Why couldn't stable coins be set up 
where their entire reserves were these instruments. So this would be uh, like a currency board. And they would say, here's what we hold. We don't hold gold itself. They could if they want. But we hold U.S. Treasury securities that will be paid out in gold and probably can trade all the way through. But there's that, that absolute claim guaranteed by the U.S. Treasury to gold. Why not issue stable coins? I even thought, would they be competing against the U.S. dollar? And then I thought, well, what will we call them? And I thought of the name Solidus, Solid U.S. But a Solidus was an ancient universal coin, gold coin, uh, going back to the Byzantine period. So that would also put competitive pressure on the paper dollar. How about the one that's actually linked to a, a treasury offering? And that is the big thing. I hope the next president of the United States will find something appealing in the idea that Nixon ended the Bretton Woods system, closed the gold window, and no president for 50 years has been willing to give some degree of some link, some assurance that the dollar could be good as gold. I would like that president to run with this as an interesting initiative. And I just don't see any downside to it. And this would be the president who for the first time under, under their administration had a treasury secretary or there was a legislative initiative that said, we are going to offer this bond, 50-year bond, to mature on that 300th anniversary. And for the first time, this president put us back on some kind of gold link between the US dollar and, and gold. I, I think that, why not? You just need someone who thinks that's actually a good idea and doesn't get talked out of it. Okay, let's leave it there. Okay. The, the pitch has been made. <laughs> um, if any presidential candidates are listening, you're available for counsel, I assume. <laughs> yes, and I even will allow it to be called Treasury Trust Bonds <laughs> or their name. <laughs> no, I just, it's the idea. And I sometimes think maybe not making it to the Fed board, things work out for a reason. Yeah. And, um, it's not the position, it's the platform. And I, I'd rather have a platform based on an idea than a title. Okay. Except that title, I Except like. Except that title. <laughs> Good as Gold, How to Unleash the Power of Sound Money, forthcoming from the Independent Institute. Thank you so much. Thanks, Matt. A million. Thanks for watching. If you liked the conversation, make sure to like the video, subscribe, and also ring the bell for notifications. And if you want to know more about Free the People, go to freethepeople.org.